Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 27, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's episode is Professor David Spiegelhalter, the Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk and Senior Scientist in the MRC Biostatistics Unit. The professor discusses just what exactly risk is, as well as the true importance of the Bayesian method. Here we go. On Strongly Connect Components today, I have the Winted Professor of Public Understanding of Risk and Senior Scientist at MRC Biostatistics Unit, Professor David Spiegelhalter. Hey, welcome to the show, Professor. Oh, it's great to be on it. The first thing I, I mentioned was a professor for the public understanding of risk. This is not the sort of position that you would see in the United States. As a matter of fact, I can't think of a public professor of anything here, as a matter of fact. So I was wondering if, uh, for the people living on this side, if you could explain a bit what being a public professor of, for the understanding of risk really actually means. Well, well, I'm not sure myself, because um, nobody in this country knew anything about it until <laughs> three years ago either, when um, it was actually uh, an endowment from a, from a hedge fund. Um, uh, someone who runs a major hedge fund in this country and who gives money to mathematical charities and, and uh, David Harding, very generous. And he put the money in um, because he felt that the way that risk and probability and chance and the way it was discussed in society really wasn't very good. The stories in the media about risks, the way in which health risks are discussed. Um, you know, he felt he'd really like it to be improved. Although, so it comes from a financial endowment, but um, in fact, I don't work on financial risk. It's something I know nothing about. Uh, so it's it's a curious job, and uh, I was given the you know quite the enviable uh, job of having um, of just being able to make it up whatever I did. Uh, I could do exactly what I want. There's no one to tell me what to do, and I've got a you know a bit of you know support to uh, which I spend on people who can write web stuff and animations. I just love pictures that move. And so we've really been making an effort to try to make interesting graphics that can represent uncertainty and, and risk. Now, uh, one of the things that you have done is this uh, Professor Risk video, which oh, yeah. a, a, lot, a lot of people have watched, uh, actually significantly more people than listen to this. Uh, it, I believe last time I checked, it was over 50,000 views on YouTube currently. And yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the things in it is that it, it shows two different versions of you, a risk-taking one and a very cautious one. And it made a very interesting point at the end, which seems to kind of at least clash with the name or the title that you have. And it's arguing that you can't let essentially can't let little risks rule your life. It's the biggest risk, I believe you said, is being too cautious. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you mean. Uh, by by that statement, considering that your it just sounds uh, your title I know is not specific, and as you said, you're kind of able to make it up, but it just sounds that arguing for taking risk might be a little bit against what that endowment was meant to be. Oh no no no, I, I disagree. Um, I think anyone who works in finance sees sees risk as 
having a positive connotation. I mean, that's one of the problems, I think, with the word is it's, it's associated with, you know, also health and safety legislation and you know, the dangers to everybody, every, you know, everything you do, being warned about stuff. And um, I, I think it's a really bad connotation. I, I you know, I really see risk as an opportunity and as being very similar things. You know, it's just, they're just the flip side. Things might turn out badly, they might turn out well. And so risk is just the idea. If you just don't know what's going to happen, it might be good, it might be bad. And sometimes you use word chance for meaning that it might be good, like winning a lottery. But we can, we can talk about something being a good risk as well. So I, 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 part of my aim with that video was to try to get over the feeling that risk is a, is a positive thing, can be a positive thing, taking some chances is, is fine, but you should just think about it. And, and of course, the fact that sometimes it won't work out, you have to take the consequences for the decisions that you take. But you can't go around trying to you know, have zero risk in your life. I mean, it's, that's gonna be pretty tedious. I mean, I, I don't think I'm trying to make a big philosophical point. That's not my <laughs> view. I think the, the basic idea, though, is that, you know, life, we don't know what's going to happen, and none of us really want to know what's going to happen. You know, you know, we don't want to know what we're going to have for Christmas, and we don't want to know exactly what we're going to be doing next year. The uncertainty is just a major part of life, and that uncertainty means that things might be okay, and they might not be. And so my particular interest in it, being coming from a mathematical background, is trying to get some idea of what the odds are of the good and bad things happening. Happening, you know what the probabilities might be, and so that's what part of what the video is about—about about thinking a little bit about these, and also realizing that some of the things that people warn you about, you know, say, "Oh, well, doing this increases your risk of getting cancer or having this, that, and the other." Actually, might not be that important on the grand scale of things. And when you think in terms of the absolute risk, the actual chance of being harmed by something starts being pretty low. So it's sort of, you know, using a mathematical argument, but to make a basic point that, um, you know, we can't avoid uh, risks and uh, we should just see, you know, life as a series of, of, uh, of risks and opportunities in the face of the fact that we just don't know what's going to happen. I sometimes daydream about doing dangerous things. But as Professor of Risk, I really need to think carefully about what the consequences might be. Part of me likes a really big fry-up for breakfast. But the cautious parts of me would sit down to a really nice sort of healthy bowl of porridge. I really feel like I've a lot of bacon. But the cautious bit of me says that it's not going to do my weight or my heart much good. And also, I know from recent work that it's going to increase my risk of bowel cancer if I eat a bacon sandwich every day. That was my guest, Professor David Spiegelhalter, playing the role of Professor Risk in a Cambridge Ideas video. If you want to see the rest of the video, head on over to acmescience.com and find the blog entry for today's episode where you can find more links about the guest as well as watch that video. Now, let us get back to the interview. Now, it, you make uh, very many good points in that, but I'm going to stick on this uh, one kind of the idea of communicating what risk really is for kind of from the mathematical perspective. And that's something that I find uh, reading articles that you've written and watching these videos that you are very good at. You're very clear communicator when it comes to mathematical and statistical information. Now, that's not something that a lot of people who study mathematics, study statistics, study even science are necessarily good at. It's, it's communicating clearly to a more general audience. What 
uh, what allowed you to really get this very clear and very strong voice for this sort of communication? Yeah, that's, that's really kind of you. And I think what it is is the fact that before I got this job a few years ago, I had sort of 30 years essentially as a, as a practicing statistician, trained in mathematics. And so I was doing methodology and publishing in methodolo- methodological journals as a, as a sort of academic statistician, but also being involved in a big range of applications, in particular in medicine. So I've spent decade after decade having to explain to doctors about what actually are quite subtle issues um, in, in statistical analysis, but in language that they can understand and they appreciate and, and enhances the communication between us. I mean, if you think any of this risk stuff is difficult, just to try to explain statistical significance to an audience. I mean, it's a nightmare. <laughs> you know, and these are the, you know, there's absolutely bread and butter areas of statistics are really tricky to explain. They're difficult. I mean, that's one of the things I've just, you know, trying to write an article, a maths education website on, which I called, you know, why do people find probability and statistics so difficult? And my, you know, the answer is because they're difficult, <laughs> and, and they're not, in, and it's not intuitive. You know, frankly, it's really tricky. This stuff, um, and it, I think, it takes a lot of practice to uh, to try to, to try to get the, the ideas over. Um, but I just love trying to do it. You know, it's the thing I really love doing is taking some tr- quite tricky issues and trying to explain them. For example, you know, in survival analysis, trying to explain issues that's quite can be quite a tricky thing to explain to people. Um, And that's actually what I'm getting more involved with now as I get more involved in um, risk communication to individuals about their their heart risk, et cetera, et cetera, their risk of various things happening to them in the future. I think it's it's, uh, doing applied statistics is a really good practice for just being forced to communicate this stuff. So you're saying that, I mean, applied statistics and you actually do end up having to talk to people in industry. Well, it's in your case, talking to, say, medical professionals. Now, is there anything else that you found that has really helped other than just having to talk to people about? Is there specific uh, suggestions you might have to someone who is looking to develop a clearer voice and understanding other or is it just should you talk to people a lot? Well, I think practice, practice, practice. Um, I now do a lot of schools work, which has taken me some time to get into that. And I'm gradually getting with younger and younger kids. Um, I haven't about 12, 13 years old is about the youngest I've been talking to so far. But I'd love to learn the skills to be able to talk to even younger kids. I, th- I think it's so important. And uh, I re- I'm really, really enjoying it. So I, I think it is a matter of practice. I, in fact, also got media training from my employer, the Medical Research Council, I had a couple of, of training sessions, and I found that was quite, really, very useful. Um, I mean, uh, some people in the media rather jeer at people who've been media trained. And it doesn't mean that you have to become one of these politicians who just stonewalls all the um, all the questions that are asked, or, or, the, or the, of course, the chairman of BP being interrogated in the US about the oil spill. So it, it doesn't mean working like that. It actually just tries to mean, I think, trying to sort out your brain before you get interviewed about something. And trying to get your your ideas over in a way that is as comprehensible and you know, as, as human as possible. So one of those aspects, I think, is, is just trying to reveal the fact that you are, even though you're a scientist, you do, in fact, have a beating heart inside you, and that, that this is part and parcel uh, your your sort of humanity and your sort of you know just, just general you know just being a person getting on with their life um, is an integral part of of your study, in fact, that's why I tend to use myself quite a lot as examples in in um, in a lot of my sort of narratives. 
you know, about risk. Yeah, you need to tell stories. You need to be able to tell stories to, to get people's interest. Now, you mentioned talking to younger and younger people. And one of the things that you are doing to do that is, I believe it's called the What Are the Odds Hands-On Risk and Probability Show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's for the Millennium Project in Cambridge, correct? Yeah, yeah. M- Millennium Mathematics Project. Yeah, yeah. we've got a full-time person who goes around schools, you know, doing this What Are the Odds? And we started calling it sort of the Risk Roadshow, but, you know, everyone in the schools thought it was something to do with health and safety and how they had to be careful in the playground and sports and things like that. So that we had to change the name because risk, the word risk, got a really bad connotation in schools as being something that uh, is just a sort of bureaucratic sort of deadening force on all the things that they actually quite like to do. So we call it What Are the Odds? So we concentrate on games and, you know, a certain amount of, of lotteries and uh, scams as well, how you can be conned um, in, you know, when when people are trying to get money out of you or whatever. So, you know, we try to make it as light as possible and end up with a sort of quiz show, you know, who wants to be a millionaire type quiz show. And we, we also use what's quite nice, these automatic voting devices that we hand out to the kids in the class so they can vote on the answers to questions and the, and the distribution of answers appears on the screen and then we can tell them which is the right one and they get scored and all this kind of stuff. So that all goes down very well. I want to make a bit of a transition here. So far, we've been talking more about the directly public work that you have been doing recently, but you are also one of the most cited uh, statisticians uh, in the world, actually. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about why you ended up getting interested in studying statistics uh, as essentially your life. Oh, well, well, I started off doing maths. I you know, went to Oxford to do maths concentrate on pure maths rather than applied maths and you know i really like the pure maths but you know to be honest it got too difficult <laughs> yeah you know goodness me it got difficult yeah so around about halfway through the second year I, this is really too much for me and um so i looked around for something that looked a bit easier and I was, I was very fortunate i had an inspiring um lecturer and tutor there adrian smith and who got me interested in the idea of statistics and first when i my first statistics course i nearly gave up it was so tedious it was untrue really couldn't stand it at all but then i got interested got interested in you know more modern ideas of what's called bayesian statistics and decision theory and uh, this started getting very interesting indeed you know there really seemed to be some powerful ideas that i found very exciting genuinely exciting and still do and those basic ideas you know i've been carrying around me now for oh god 35 new yeah yeah over 35 years and they're still just as fresh and exciting and i use them in my work all the time and, and these are, you know, basic ideas about, you know, the philosophy of probability. What is probability? Does it exist? You know, what is it? If it's not, you know, there's a mathematical theory of probability, well, what does it actually mean? Uh, and it's really tricky. You know, what does probability mean? You ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers, even, you know, in the trade, among mathematicians and, and probabilists and statisticians, you get different answers. Um, I've got a particular ideological point of view, the, the Bayesian point of view, that actually says that probability doesn't exist. You know, it's really... We make up these numbers. They, you know, they are subjective judgments that reflect our understanding of the world. It doesn't exist in the outside world, except possibly at a subatomic level. And I might be prepared to believe that. But apart from that, all probabilities are inventions of ourselves. So, yeah, that's quite a fairly extreme point of view. I find that it's very useful, and everything I do now in my public work reinforces the idea that that's the correct way to interpret probabilities and numerical risks, that they're constructions on the basis of our available knowledge, and they don't actually objectively exist. Now, you you mentioned specifically that 
you study Bayesian statistics. Now, my background in statistics is very poor. I'm actually a graph theorist by uh, my research. And so I was wondering if you could explain maybe, I mean, other than just what you did about Bayesian statistics, but also what the other prevailing models within the statistical world might be. Yeah, this is a really important issue. Oh, by the way, the other thing I really enjoyed doing in Oxford was graph theory, but that that got a bit difficult as well. <laughs> so, uh, of philosophical schools of statistics, but we can simplify it down to two, I suppose. Uh, one is, you know, the classical framework that thinks of probability in terms of, of relative frequencies, you know, asymptotic stuff. If you do something a thousand times, what proportion, you know, as n goes to infinity, what proportion of the time this event occurs is the definition of the probability. So it's treated as a state of the world. You may not know what it is, but it's an objective state of the world that is defined in terms of relative frequencies, repeatable events. The Bayesian perspective is totally different. It says the probability doesn't exist. It's not a state of the world. It's a state of our understanding of the world. It's our it's our personal belief about what the event is. It doesn't have to be any re- repetition. And so it's quite, when I talk about the probability of uh, who's going to be the next president of the United States, you know, who, who will be, and I, and I go onto a website and, and find out the betting odds, those probabilities are to me just as much probabilities as the probability of a coin coming up 50% or whatever. They're just as valid as probabilities, even though they change every day as people change their beliefs about who might be the next president. Those are still probabilities. They obey the mathematical theory of probability, and they can be used in exactly the same way. And literally, of course, they are used to place bets, which is the most important application of probability. Essentially, the Bayesian point of view sees all probabilities in terms of betting odds. And that underlies, yeah, actually, has very deep implications for the way in which you, you know, make estimates, you make, you make judgments about what the true, about uh, statistics in the real world, you know, like you're looking at a drug and you want to know what would be the average benefit on this drug if I treat this population. Well, that's an unknown quantity. It's a state of the world. Um, I don't know what it is. And so I can put a probability distribution over that state of the world, that parameter, that mean effect. That reflects my uncertainty, my personal uncertainty. It might vary from person to person because they have different knowledge. So the Bayesian point of view says you can actually put probability distributions over unknown states of the world, essentially expressing your personal uncertainty about a fact that you just don't know, you just don't have incomplete knowledge of. Nothing to do with future events necessarily, nothing to do with randomness at all. It purely expresses our personal uncertainty. Now, this can lead to very deep um, differences in philosophy about the way to handle data, and in particular to make, um, you know, make predictions and make judgments about, about the world, because it means that we're allowed, if necessary, to bring in our own judgments. Uh, it's not just data alone. Um, data adds to our judgments, and Bayes' theorem is a mathematical way of learning from the world in a formal way, updating our judgments on the basis of new data, but that's not you know, an absolutely essential requisite. Um, we can base judgments on our judgment, um, base probabilities on our judgments alone if necessary. This is quite a controversial approach, but which recently has, has achieved enormous um, growth in the statistics area, so much so that I'd say that almost the majority of papers now published in many areas of statistics have in fact got a Bayesian philosophy behind them. One of the things that's driven the, the gain in Bayesian methods is the fact that computational tools to, to handle this um, uh, updating of our beliefs about you know, large numbers of parameters on the basis of new information, things that up to 20 years ago were mathematically sort of infeasible to carry out. You just couldn't do the integrations. You couldn't handle the huge multidimensional probability distributions that were necessary. 
the, the, the growth of simulation methods in, in computing has led to the, those computations becoming not only possible, but sometimes the only way to handle these really big problems, which means that engineers have embraced Bayesian methods with wholeheartedly machine learning, all those areas, and now enormous uses of Bayesian methods. So I made my sort of most of my reputation on Bayesian computation, uh, writing so or you know, with a team writing software called Bugs and WinBugs, which is the biggest, most widely used Bayesian software in the world. And we developed some methodology as well. And so that's why I got my citations. It worked very well. <laughs> I tell you, if you want a lot of citations, uh, I, I, I did an article about this, uh, Thompson ISI. If you want a lot of citations, you know, introduce a method and then make sure you, you produce a software in which that method can be used. And, and if that software is widely used, it means that every time someone does it you get a reference you get a citation which means that this paper we wrote about a bayesian model uh, selection criterion is now it's the third most highly cited paper in the entire mathematical sciences in the whole world <laughs> in the last 10 years <laughs> so <laughs> that's how you that's how you go in your citations <laughs> yeah so so who would be it the uh the paper about methodology using matlab and maple uh <laughs> Yeah, well, it, no, the, well, if you can produce a method that fills a gap, and um, people were struggling before, they can do something that nothing else can do, and you provide the software, then um, that's the way to get the citations. Now, now you mentioned you mentioned betting, and yep. that is that is something a little bit little bit on my head right now because I I told you before the interview, and people who listen to this, even though this is going to come out after I'm back home know that I am going over to uh, England for about 10 yeah. days. I, I'm yeah. leaving on the day that I'm recording this. And one thing that I, is is quite different, even though I do live in Las Vegas, so it's not different for me, is is the bookies. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You have a, you have a lot more of that. And I, I have a very personal uh, attachment to the English Premier League as well, uh, specifically to Arsenal, who I support. You have written a, uh, or you did a thing for more or less, uh, the statistical yeah. radio show on, I believe it's on BBC. Uh, and you actually uh, did a little bit of a, uh, it was a predictive model and you got a, one week, you got nine out of 10 match results, right? Two exact scores, right? Yeah, so yeah, could yeah. you tell me who's going to win Arsenal or Tottenham in a couple of, it's not this weekend, but uh weekend next. No, I can't. Um, but if I had a while and I had, and I had the, <laughs> the scores up to now, if, if I had the recent performance of the teams, I could give you a reasonable probability about it. You know, it wouldn't, you know, not a bad betting odds for it. Um, because, you know, as you know, you know, gambling you know, is big, big business everywhere. Um, but the mathematics of gambling, I think, is extremely interesting, in, especially in sports gambling. In fact, and, you know, there's a lot of work done on that. In fact, my predecessor, professor of statistics at Cambridge University, has now left to work full-time for a sports betting company, predicting football and horse racing results. And the, the, the I mean, there's quite a few publications about predicting football results. But <laughs> what happens, of course, is that a team starts publishing papers on predicting football results, and then they get rather good at it, and, and then suddenly the papers stop, <laughs> and they leave universities, and they start making money. And that's exactly what happened with the people I know. So uh, the, the method I've used on the radio is just uh, a fairly basic model. It's about the version of the model people were using publicly about 10 years ago before they started getting, you know, trying to be a lot cleverer. And it's, it's actually, you know, a fairly straightforward model. You know, you, you, for every team, you estimate their attack strength based on the, uh, the number of goals they've scored so far, and, you know, whether they're scoring above or below average. And you also estimate 
their defence weakness in terms of whether they're letting in above or below average goals. One of the first things you do is, is your modelling is not trying to predict whether they win, draw or lose. You, you try to predict the actual number of goals. So you, you really go for uh, a probability on every single match result. And that, that's the, way the, model, the correct way to do the modelling. Because it turns out that if you use these factors, you know, looking at whether teams tend to score or let in above average number of goals, it's fairly easy to get an expected number of goals that each team would score. So, you know, I don't know, in your match, you might get something you expect Spurs to score 1.2 and Arsenal to score 2.3 or something like that. Now, you know, nobody can score that number of goals, but because we know about the Poisson distribution and the fact that goals in a match do follow pretty close to a, a Poisson distribution, given their expectation, that you can actually use the uh, Poisson distribution to work out the probability of any particular goal combination. And so therefore you can add up the probabilities on the diagonal, you get the probability of a draw, you add up the probabilities on the upper diagonal, and you get probability of a win and lose, etc., which you then can use to compare with the odds being given by bookies to work out whether it's worth placing a bet or not. And these are the slightly more sophisticated models than this, this ones the bookies use in order to set the odds as well. So, you know, it's not enormously sophisticated statistical modeling. We were lucky one year when we did it. Um, the next year I tried it and did really badly, but that's <laughs> the way it goes. You know, I, I said, oh, it's just regression to the mean. You know, I was, lucky, I was lucky one year, you can't expect luck to last. So I don't do it, I don't place the bets myself, um, but I do use it actually in teaching in schools. Because, it, you know, to try to interest 16-year-old boys in mathematics uh, who are all obsessed with football, it, it's quite good to say, I'm going to, you know, try to predict next week's football results. Yeah, it's quite quite a good teaching tool. Now, one last thing I would like to talk about. This is something that I really like to bring up whenever I have a little bit of knowledge of it, because I think that it really helps kind of show how people get out of of mathematics, not not out as in stop doing it, but out as in something to kind of balance the life, which is something I feel very important. And I know that you are very interested in both, I believe, stained glass and samba drumming. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was, I was sort of wondering how that ends up tying into your life and, and the importance it has for you. Oh, that's interesting. Well, the stained glass, anyone you know, want to click through all my work from my website and everything, most of my stained glass is mathematical um, because I'm not really an artist. I, I hardly call myself a craftsman, but I can actually make, you know, I've taught myself and been to classes to, um, I can actually put together a stained glass panel, reasonably do the leading and cut the glass and things like that. But I'm not, I'm not a creative artist at all, so I tend to use geometrical designs. But I, they can be statistical, you know, Latin square designs and Sudoku patterns are very good. And, you know, you can do all sorts of different designs that, that give uh, a very pleasing symmetry, very pleasing pictures. But, uh, but I've done other ones. I've done cross-section. I, I, mean, I actually had a commission and a brain map, you know, um, a cross-section, a functional MRI image of a brain, colored, makes some lovely patterns, very nice patterns, which, you can, which I did in glass. And that works out very well. So I do sort of scientific and, and uh, mathematical glass and there's all sorts of stuff you know you know so nice geometric shapes some of the tessellations are more tricky because they, you, there's only certain ways in which you can cut glass you can't really do sharp indents to glass and so you know you can't make all the patterns in glass very easily so i like that samba drumming i just like doing on my sense of rhythm is not wonderful but it's not too bad and i'm um I'm a second-rate samba drummer, but they put up with me if I just stand at the back and go boom, boom, boom. And that's what I like doing. Okay, well, uh, Professor, I want to thank you so much for spending this time and talking to me on the phone. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been a, ple been a pleasure. Real, thank you so much. 
And that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to leave me any feedback or perhaps suggest a guest, I love getting suggestions, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. If you want to find out more about the guest, Professor David Spiegelhalter, just head on over to acmescience.com. Click on the Strongly Connected Components tab and find the entry about this episode. As always, the music on today's show is brought to you by Hard and Firm, the Pie Song, which is our intro and SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org, and that's the music you're hearing my voice talk over right now. This podcast is a Creative Commons Attribution Share Like Licensed Podcast. And if you don't know what that means, head on over to Creative Commons and check out the amazing, wonderful work they are doing to try to revolutionize what copyright is today. No, it really doesn't have much to do with math, but trust me, it is actually really quite cool. Well, thank you for listening, and I hope that you, uh, you know, check out the next episode and all the rest of them that I ever do. Bye-bye. <laughs>